You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. As we come to God's Word again this evening, uh, let's pause again in prayer and ask for God's help. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you already uh, for the encouragement we've had this evening as we've uh, sung to each other and in your presence these deep truths. We thank you for the deep, deep love of Jesus that lifts our eyes to you. And we pray that by your word and through your spirit, you would do that again this evening. We pray for those who are fearful, that they would know comfort, those who are disturbed, that they would be encouraged, uh, those who are comfortable, that they might be stirred, uh, and those of us who are rejoicing, that we might rejoice in the Lord, uh, and Lord, in every way, that we might be encouraged in faith to be uh, yet more fruitful disciples of all that you've entrusted into our care. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. And you just want to take a moment to say thank you for the warm welcome I've had today. It was very good for me to be with you this morning. I was well taken care of this afternoon, and it was nice to meet new friends too. So thank you again for this welcome. It's been a privilege for me to be here, and I'll hope there's another opportunity again sometime. Uh, if you were here this morning, you'll know it was quite a long passage that we looked at together uh, at the very beginning of the Bible in John as... Uh, I know my Bible. Very. Uh, yes, yes. The beginning of the Bible is the Gospel of John. No, it's the book of Genesis. I was just checking on you there. Uh, a long chapter in Genesis. But this evening we go to the, uh, the other end of the scriptures, uh, to the book of James. And although we'll just be looking at a couple of verses from James, we'll read a passage there from James chapter 1. It's uh, on page 1,213 of the Pew Bibles, but if you go to the back and turn a few pages in, you'll find James quickly enough. So it's James chapter 1. We'll start reading at verse 19, and we'll read to the end of the chapter, and our focus this evening will be on those last two verses, verses 26 and 27, but I'll begin reading at verse 19. So James chapter 1. Beginning at verse 19. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, But doing it, 
he will be blessed in what he does. If anyone considers himself religious yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Religion that our God, our Father, accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Well, our thoughts, as I say, will be thinking about these last two verses, about religion that is pure and faultless. What is religion that is pure and faultless? Well, as uh, I mentioned this morning, my day job is to be a lecturer. If you were uh, in a religious studies course, they might spend the the first week trying to come up with a definition for religion. Uh, We don't have that kind of time. But it's interesting to me that in, uh, in Christian circles, it's often the case that we say, it's not religion. You know, we don't want to talk about religion and Christianity, and it's in some ways becoming an absent word from Christian vocabulary. Might be a number of reasons for that. Uh, I think on the one hand, uh, there is that truth where we say, it's not religion, it's relationship. And there's a real truth there. There's a a concern for formalism and that we'll avoid some of that, that, that there is a real relationship, a personal relationship Uh, with our God. We also might be a little bit nervous. Religion, you know, it's activity, it's things we do. And actually, it's not about what I do. It's grace, isn't it? And it's a gift. And so we maybe set aside the term religion as slightly problematic for us. But in fact, it's precisely the word that James uses in these two verses. If anyone considers himself religious, religion that our God, uh, God our Father accepts as pure as is this. Uh, it's interesting to me, if you look back, of course, at some of the older writers, there was no embarrassment about talking about religion. Uh, over the summer, I had the opportunity to read the biography of Henry Martin, who was a man who died around uh, 1811 uh, or so, so lived quite a long time ago. Uh, but he, like a number of pioneer missionaries, in, he was in India, he was at death's door, and he was being nursed back to health in somebody's home, uh, in the home of the Sherwoods, in fact, doesn't really matter, but Mrs. Sherwood kept a journal of Henry Martin's time in their home, and uh, she wrote this about him. She said, his one leading and prevailing object of interest was the promotion of religion. It's a kind of odd thing for us to hear. But clearly what she meant was, and it was quite obvious in the life of Henry Martin, the promotion of Christianity. Well, when we look into James then and try to get a handle on what is this that James wants to do, Uh, have us think about as pure and undefiled, pure and faultless religion, what's he thinking about? Well, religion, I think, excuse me, can be summarized pretty quickly, or at least, uh, you know, we're not sitting an exam on this, are we? So uh, we can do it fairly quickly. And a thumbnail definition might be that set of beliefs and practices which structure our life before God. 
It's quite simple, isn't it? It, it is things that we do. I think the, the term that James is using when he's writing in Greek here referred to uh, an external and outward piety. It is, it's a kind of set of beliefs and practices that order our lives and structure our life before God. Well, in thinking about these two brief verses, I want us first to consider very briefly one contrast of two categories, and then very briefly about three qualities. So, two categories and three qualities. That makes it a five-point sermon, doesn't it? But uh, that might even be a little misleading because the, the, the contrasts are quite clear but a little bit unusual, and that's why I draw attention to them. I mean, we, we would tend to think if we are con- contrasting something, we'd tend to go for polar opposites, wouldn't we? We'd, we'd contrast the good and the bad, or the, that which is true with that which is false, or that which is pure from that which is impure, or the worthless and the valuable. We'd have a kind of balanced pair. But the pair that James gives us isn't quite a balanced pair in that, in that way. So we just want to notice it and hold in mind the question why. He has on the one hand, obviously, this uh, worthless religion at the end of 26. But he contrasts that with pure religion in verse 27. So it's not like worthless and valuable or impure and pure, but it's uh, worthless and pure is the contrast. Well, what, what does he have in mind here? So the first contrast is worthless. And what, what, is, what does James mean by worthless here? He means worthless. I think that more or less sums it up. I mean, it's not deep in that sense, is it? I mean, it is what it, what it says on the tin, as they once used to say. It, well, let's just hold on to that. It's worthless on the one side. It's empty. It's, it's vain. It gets us nowhere. It's worthless. But contrasted with that in verse 27 is that which is pure, faultless, as the NIV has it, undefiled. So there's, there's a quality of innocence. There's a quality of purity. Not quite opposites. But James isn't the first to use this kind of contrast. It's interesting that in Psalm 24, we get the same kind of contrast around a similar kind of question. Psalm 24, verse 3, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? It's a little bit like the question about, well, what is true religion? What is pure religion? Who may ascend the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. There is kind of, in in this Psalms passage, this tension between that which is worthless and false, that which is pure and good. Well, a little bit more about this contrast in just a moment, but those are the two categories then that James is working with, that which is worthless, that which is pure. We'll get a resolution to it in just a moment, I think. So if that's the two categories, what about the three qualities? Well, they're very clear, aren't they? Something to do with speech, there's something to do with orphan and widow care, and something to do with the world. So that's one, two, and three, the three qualities. 
The first one, I think, characterized negatively by James, but I think we want to try to take something positive from it. His first quality is that of undisciplined speech in verse 26. If anyone considers himself religious, yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion his actions, his life, his structured life before God and in the world, worthless. Well, as you'll know if you've studied James, and my hunches probably many here have, in James chapter 3, he uh, takes quite a bit of space to unpack problematic speech. But the scriptures are quite full of concern about what we do with our tongues, how we use our words. So it's not only in James chapter 3 where he says, much as with the metaphor he has here, put a rein on your tongue. He says in James 3, when we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Take ships as an example, he goes on. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. So this problem then is with undisciplined speech, and the problem for James is that it has to do with not so much deceit to another, deceiving another, not so much deceiving God, but really here with deceiving ourselves. He deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Well, our tongues can be a bit runaway, can't they? Uh, and all of us keep up sort of running conversations in our heads. Most of us keep those running conversations to ourselves. Sometimes they slip out. Uh, have, have you ever observed this sort of uh, behavior? I've, uh, the, if you've had any encounter with children, uh, which I think most people have, you'll have seen it where something goes wrong, they, they spilled something, whatever it might be. But Bobby, you know, what did you do that for? I didn't, I didn't do that. I didn't. And it's absolutely believed implicitly, isn't it? Well, it's not just little Bobby that might do that. Uh, grown adults can do the same thing and implicitly believe the things that we tell ourselves about ourselves. You know, Jeremiah rightly says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. So we tell ourselves things that we want to believe are true and they aren't true. Um, we have words that we use to others, of course, that are often deceitful. There are words that we use to God that do not convey truth. Sometimes we pray runaway prayers and we're running on autopilot. Um, who do we suppose is listening? James points out that speech that's honest about self then, that is helpful to others, will be honoring to God. It inclines us towards that pure religion then that he speaks of in the next verse. So that's the, 
first a negative quality that he would have us think about uh, speech which is dishonest about self. The second quality is the quality of visiting orphans and widows in verse 27, right away characterized as that religion that God our Father accepts to look after orphans and widows in their distress. It's very interesting how James frames this because it is It isn't a a, a passive thing. Um, It is a sense of seeking out, of visiting. Uh, When we visit, we go somewhere to visit. And that's precisely what um, James has in mind here. And the concern with orphans and widows, like the concern for speech, is another one that's deeply embedded throughout Scripture. Each of the blocks of law in the Pentateuch, in the books of Moses, has concern with the orphan, with the widow, and often joined to concern for the alien, the stranger, the foreigner who's living among the children of Israel. These classes of people in society who are vulnerable and weak. Now, the New Testament think, tends to place an emphasis on, on widow care. And so we read about this in, in Acts chapter 6. It's sort of the first controversy in the church is who's taking care of the widows and whose widows are getting more of the support than uh, the other's group and so on. And likewise in First Timothy chapter 5, there's a quite a lengthy passage for how to take care of the widows among you. And of course the widows were an quite an extraordinarily vulnerable group uh, in this world. And at that time, if you didn't have a male to support you, if you weren't part of a larger domestic framework, you had very little uh, way of supporting yourself or caring for yourself. So there's that kind of concern. Uh, I think concern in our day and age tends to be more with orphans, isn't it? uh, I mentioned this morning our connection to Malawi. uh, It's it's a lot of orphan care. You put the small child on television or on your brochure and those eyes are looking at you. The little child is there. uh, It's quite a powerful draw on us that we want to care for these vulnerable children. So we do need to care for these vulnerable children. Well, where is all this coming from? Well, as I mentioned, it does have its deep roots in the Old Testament. Many places we could go to to see how this has worked out. But let me just point uh, you to one this evening, or maybe two or three. We'll see just one to start with. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 10. Deuteronomy chapter 10. Just briefly, I'll read you a couple of verses No need to turn there, but it's Deuteronomy 10, 17 to 19. I think this is, gives us a bit of a key. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow He loves the alien, giving him food and clothing. And you are to love those who are aliens, for you yourselves were aliens in Egypt. Do you see the the connection that's made there? 
The Lord your God, God of gods, Lord of lords, the great God, the mighty, the awesome, he defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. There is something as the community is invited into the care for the vulnerable, there is something in that, in being invited into the very character, the very mission, the very ministry, we could even say, of God himself. We noticed this morning when we were talking about uh, the sin of Sodom, that Sodom's fundamental, fundamental sin wasn't the uh, sexual sin that presented itself in Genesis 19, but it was lack of care. It was an indulgence in self and a lack of care for those who were weak and vulnerable. And so James writes to uh, his Christian hearers, the kind of religion that our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this kind, to look after orphans and widows. And now we see why, don't we? Because it's an invitation into doing what God the Father himself is doing. And we're being into, invited into the life of God. Well, thirdly, the final quality that uh, James holds out is to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Well, it's, this is an interesting little trio about the speech and the uh, care for the vulnerable and the uh, care to keep oneself pure, because it does in fact uh, line up with what James teaches in, in other chapters. We, I mentioned that the uh, care for speech, that the attention to speech is unpacked in James chapter 3. In fact, what we've just read about caring for the weak and vulnerable really ties in both the chapter 2 of James, which is about not showing partiality to the rich. If the rich man walks through the door, it doesn't, doesn't matter. Uh, and with chapter 5, um, you have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence, writes James. You have fattened yourselves for the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who are opposing you. There's a real concern, therefore, economic justice that comes out in this caring for the vulnerable. And this third aspect of being unstained by the world, it's James chapter 4. James chapter 4, verse 4, puts it as starkly, well, it's very stark and it's a little uncomfortable. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. That's a pretty searching little verse, isn't it? James's concern here in saying that religion which is pure is this, to look after orphans and widows, well, we like social justice, don't we? That's, that's a good thing. To keep oneself from being polluted by the world, that's, that's a big ask. It's an important ask, however. The, the word that James uses here for keeping oneself from being polluted is in fact a word that doesn't occur very frequently in the New Testament at all, only Four times, in fact, and it's very <coughs> revealing if we see where else that term is used, because it's used of Christ. 
In 1 Peter 1, we read, Conduct yourselves uh, in such a way, because you are ransomed. Uh, I should get the whole passage uh, here. So it's 1 Peter, uh, verse 17. Just read those few verses. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. You know it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. That lamb without blemish or spot. That's the kind of purity that James is calling for here. And in fact, it comes up again, not just of Jesus, but in the second epistle of Peter, chapter 3. I just want to keep flipping over a couple of pages. Second Peter 3, verse 14. Peter makes an appeal So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this hope of deliverance from the coming destruction, since then you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, at peace with him. It's as if Peter is aligning the spotlessness of Christ as the sacrificial offering on our behalf with the spotlessness to which All those who would follow Christ are being called to. It's a call, in fact, for us to be like Jesus. There's an echo here of Jesus' own words when he prayed on behalf of the church in John chapter 17. I have given them your word, Jesus said. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, as I am not of the world. And I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself so that they may be sanctified by the truth. Um, It's a dense passage, isn't it? But you would have picked up, I think, the into the world, into the world, not of the world. So on the one hand, there's this relationship of Christ in the world, of our place in the world. And on the other hand, the concern for holiness Of course, it's hidden behind some of this language. Sanctify them. To be sanctified is to be set apart as holy. Sanctify them in the truth. For their sake, I consecrate myself. I set myself apart as holy. So that they may also be sanctified, set apart as holy. Well, James is telling us in this little passage on pure and faultless religion, that that kind of holiness only comes when we keep ourselves from being polluted by the world, when we are spotless. And it's a 
big challenge to know what that means because we are in the world uh, and there are so many temptations. It's so easy to indulge self, isn't it? But a little bit like Lot this morning, it's about having rightly ordered affections of God so working on our heart day by day, dare I say it, moment by moment, that our affections are more and more aligned to those affections uh, that set themselves on Christ and from Christ on God. Well, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Just as we wrap up, I want to stand back to see these three qualities together because they are quite striking. James's view of religion is quite a comprehensive view. And having just reflected briefly on these three qualities, I think we could sum them up this way. James's first concern with disciplined speech remember, was concerned that we did not deceive ourselves. There's a concern in this kind of religion with self, our relation, my relationship with me, if you like. There is a care in concern for the vulnerable, for the orphan, for the widow, for the alien, to be concerned for the, your neighbor. Who is my neighbor? Well, it's uh, as the Good Samaritan found. It's the one that you encounter who is in need. Relationship to myself, relationship to my neighbor. And, of course, this final quality of being, of keeping oneself from being polluted by the world has to do with that wider world in which we live, to be unstained by it. That's pretty comprehensive, isn't it, in three short qualities me, my neighbor, and the world beyond. It captures all three of those levels. And it's pretty demanding stuff, isn't it? To have speech that is characterized to myself, not just when it can be tested by others, but that is true. To have that life of caring so that when it encounters need, is ready sacrificially to meet a need. Who live to live in the world, but in such a way that the inevitable muck that we encounter doesn't stain us. Who, who is sufficient for these things, we might ask. Well, of course, James here is also pointing us to his brother, isn't he? Of course, James shared a mother with Jesus. And Jesus is, of course, one whose words about himself were always true. Striking about Jesus is that even Jesus' silences about himself were always true. Who, who I wonder, went farthest out of their way to visit Orphans and widows and those in need? I think that would be Jesus who left his father, made a journey that we find Advent by Advent and Christmas by Christmas, one of the most remarkable journeys ever made. Who became flesh, and who became one of us so that he might meet our deepest needs 
who was the one who lived in the world and yet was never stained by it. As the writer to the Hebrews put it in Hebrews chapter 4, he was tempted in every way as we are and yet was without sin. James, sorry, Hebrews 4, 15. And so as James calls us to religion that is pure and undefiled, it's, it's a call to inevitably be like Jesus. We look to Jesus and we ascend the holy hill. We can stand in the holy place only with him. This is religion that's pure and undefiled. So when we think about religion, that set of beliefs and practices which orders our lives in the world and before God, it is a call, just as Jesus prayed for his church in John 17, that we would be holy as he is holy. It's the call to be transformed, to be ever more like him. James's sketch of the life of true religion has Jesus-like contours. So by being with him day by day, spending time in his word, in prayer, with his spirit, encouraged by his people, living in community with others who have been called to be pilgrims too, we ask ourselves, is, is my speech growing to be ever more transparent and truthful? Do I tell myself the truth about myself? Because it's only when I do that that I can be taken up by the one who is able, as we again heard this morning, to take us by the hand and to lead us to a place of honesty and transparency. Is my life sacrificial in caring for those I meet? It can mean going distances. It can mean meeting the needs of those who are deeply needy. It can mean lingering in a seat on a Sunday because you've noticed the person next to you isn't quite right today. You want to get away. What does sacrifice call us to do in caring for the needy, the weak, those who are poor? Is my sense of discernment growing ever sharper so that I'm able to live in the world and yet not be stained by it? Are we ready to repent to say, Lord, I'm sorry, cleanse me again, clean me, please. To say to the one who is the master vine dresser, I think you're going through John in the evenings. Maybe you've heard John 15 recently or will soon that you've been cleansed. Yes, we've been cleansed, but we need to be pruned. Take away that which is worthless. Help me to flourish. Jesus kept some pretty rough company, you know. Uh, but it didn't transform him. It worked the other way around. He transformed it. So let's heed James's call this evening to spend time in his presence, to have our lives transformed so that we'll be more like his life. And so that if we think about our Christianity in terms of religion, we'll think about our external piety and actions as those which are pleasing to God because they have Christ-like contours because of Christ's work in us.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we pause now, uh, having spent time in your word and still remaining in your presence, we come, I sense very much my own inadequacy. And so we just want to take a moment to confess to you once again, Lord, that in our words, in our thoughts, in our actions, we so often sin against you and against our neighbor. And we pray for your forgiveness. We thank you that we have a Savior, a Redeemer. And that as we look to him, we see one who lived that life of true speech, of sacrificial care, of purity, and calls us to share his life. So we pray that you would transform us day by day, so long as you should give us life and breath to look to him, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, so that we might grow more to be like him, so that you might be glorified. For it's in Jesus' own name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.